You're not listening to episode 65 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here, we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli here today with Juan Vargas, full-time entrepreneur, multifamily syndicator, and host of the Commit to Wealth podcast. In this episode, we'll discuss Juan's journey from single to multifamily investing, why he invests in Texas, multifamily performance metrics, individual and multifamily tax strategies, plus much more. Before we jump into today's episode, I just want to let you know that we're putting on special year-end tax planning virtual workshops in September, October, and November of this year to make you aware of the tax strategies that might just save you a few thousand dollars before the year winds down. If you're interested in learning more or want to sign up for one, visit www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshops. Again, that's www.therealestatecpa.com backslash virtual dash workshops or follow the link in the show notes below and we'll look forward to seeing you there. One, thanks for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you went from a technician at BMW to a multifamily syndicator? Sure, sure. Hey, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you to both of you, uh, Brandon and Thomas, you know, for having me on your show. Uh, it's a pleasure to be on here. So thank you so much for that. Um, so yeah, you know, my start, you know, as a BMW technician. Um, and so you know, that was after high school. I wanted to do something really quick. Uh, I didn't want to go through that four-year college and you know, that four-year route. Um, I wanted to help my parents out. And I, and I figured, hey, do something that, that's quick. Uh, I was good with my hands. So I was like, hey, let's try this. You know, So it was a technical school that I went to. I went to go work for BMW. It was a good career. But you know, it's one of those things uh, that's a skill set position. So if you, the better you become in a skill set position, it becomes a trap. And for me, I started realizing that after a good while. You know, I wish I would have realized that much sooner, but I didn't. And so, you know, I started looking into different ways to create passive income, you know, because I wanted to kind of get out of it, right? So um, also I also had three kids and that was another motivating factor for me. So I uh, started looking into uh, passive income and different sources and there's a bunch of them out there. One of them that kept popping up for me was real estate. And also because my dad was already in real estate, he already had rental houses. And he even told me as a kid to, to get into real estate, but you know, he, he did everything himself from A to Z, you know, and he was under the sink and doing those kind of things. You know, I'm like, man, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be, you know, fixing, you know, toilets and, you know, fixing sinks and things like that. So I realized that he wasn't scaling up. And so, you know, real estate kept up enough for me. And, um, you know, sure enough, I ended up getting into real estate uh, with uh, some single family houses. And so that was my, my start in, in real estate. And shortly after that, I, you know, I started to realize that uh, single family was good, but multifamily was just that much better. I mean, I really realized that in, in my hot moment was whenever I was vacant on one of my houses. And, um, you know, guess what? If you're vacant in one of your houses, guess who's paying for everything? You know, is the guy that freaking signed on the freaking loan, you know, or the guy that, that owns the house. Um, and that was me, you know, and so I paid for the mortgage, the taxes, the utilities and everything. And I was like, man, this sucks, man. This really sucks. You know, I don't know why people say that, you know, having houses is good, you know, unless you you scale really, really large, you know, and, and you can you can do it that way. 
Uh, so multifamily was that next natural thing for me. And, and uh, you know, that's how I got my start into, into multifamily. Nice. So you had 34 single family rentals, I believe. At that point, was it just becoming unmanageable or what was it specifically, I guess, that made you say, you know what, it's time for me to let this behind and just go full time into multifamily? Was it that was it you just had to keep, you know, keep robbing one property to pay for the other or was it just a scale issue? Yeah, yeah. No, so, so actually it, it was... At that moment, uh, when I say the 34 units, I had two single-family homes and then 32 units as a multifamily property. But but yeah, it, it was more because you get the scalability in, in multifamily that you don't get in single-family. And single-family, for me, personally, I know there's a lot of you know single-family investors out there. And I'm not saying it's bad. I, I think it's good. It's just, for me, it was a scalability issue because you know you have... You know, so many different loans, and then you have so many different insurance policies, and so many different sites, and you know, so many different roofs, and so many different repairs, whatever. So it was more of a scalability issue or or concern for me. That and the other fact was, you know, the vacancy. You know, if you're vacant on a house on a single family house, you're 100 percent vacant. If you're vacant on a ten unit, you're still 90 percent occupied. You know, so that was another big factor for me in, in the jump, in making the jump to multifamily. So you made the jump to multifamily, but what are some of the key challenges you faced as you made that transition from single family to multifamily? And maybe how long did it take you to really feel like you were more in the multifamily space than single family? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. So, I mean, some of the challenges that I faced, you know, for sure right away was as you try to go into multifamily, it could be a different space versus single family, which, you know, and I'll elaborate on that. You know, single family, you can you know find them all over the place. You know, there's a lot of, you know, realtors and, you know, agents that, that sell single family. But, you know, when it comes to multifamily, it's more, uh, you know, it's, it's more of a specialty, I guess you can say. So there's brokers uh, that, that specialize in multifamily. And so my challenge, you know, in saying that was, you know, I would reach out to these guys and tell them, hey, I want to buy some multifamily properties. You know, this is my criteria. And they're like, okay, cool. So what do you own now? Well, I don't own anything, but I want to buy. I want to buy. And they're like, well, okay, but you know, what do you own? And so that was the biggest challenge that I had was, you know, these guys actually taking me seriously to the point where, hey, you know, I can be a guy you can count on and I'll, I will close on this property. And uh, they will send me properties and, you know, everything they send me was pretty much junk. You know, things that everybody else had already seen, you know, all over the place. So then that's when I took matters in my own hands. And that was... Uh, via direct mail. I was like, okay, well, these guys are not going to send me some some deals. So let me do this myself and, and send some letters out, you know, kind of like the single family side. And so that was the way I acquired my first 32 unit property, you know. Very nice. So, so you really invested in the direct mail efforts. So you were able to pick up some multifamily property. When you transitioned to multifamily and maybe once you were into it for a year or two, did you notice any changes in your tax position? Was it better to own multifamily or was it better to own single family or did you pick up on any of that or what are your thoughts there? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. That's a very good point. Uh, for multifamily, you know, there was a bigger uh, tax advantages for me personally, you know, everybody, you know, obviously is in a different situation, you know, so consult with your CPA, like somebody like Brandon, you know, but for me, multifamily was definitely the better tax advantage um, position there um, you know, versus the multifamily. And, you know, I'm no CPA, I'm no expert in that, but, you know, it could be because of, you know, it was a higher purchase price, you know, so you minus the, the, the land, which you can never deduct. So you have the actual property and every, all the belongings and, you know, all the items and everything that it includes. And so we're able to uh, deduct that, you know, and this was, 
in 2016, when I acquired this property, so this is before bonus depreciation, you know, and, and all that good stuff, which, you know, definitely we can talk about. And it, by the way, I'm no expert in this, you know, again, so, but I'll give you my, my two cents in it, you know? Well, our podcast is meant to trick people. So I'm just there you go. <laughs> we try to make you look good. It's fine. <laughs> um, no, so do you, so with your multifamily purchases that you're making now, are you looking at cost like studies and going through that, those motions? Yeah. Yeah. So we're syndicating properties now, right? So, you know, one of the, the biggest advantages for our passive investors, you know, is that they get to take a bigger piece of that uh, depreciation or that loss, right? So yeah, we definitely are doing cost segregation, you know, and we're doing bonus depreciation on our properties. I think it would be stupid for us not to, you know, because, you know, it's there. And frankly, you know, a lot of the investors, they ask, that's one of the first questions that they ask, you know, if you're not doing it, then they're not going to invest in the properties. So you can claim it and do it now, or you cannot, you know, if you, you it's your choice really. But, you know, I think if, if you're not doing it, then you're really missing out on an opportunity there. You know, hundred percent, you know, a lot of our clients are looking for that, that cost seg and looking for those losses when they're investing with a syndicate or investing in their own multifamily property. And believe it or not, the more and more I read about, like in, in read investment materials from other syndicators, I'm starting to see that taxes is a, is a big factor for a lot of investors. They want to make sure that their real estate investments are tax advantaged. So definitely want to take advantage of that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I'm also a passive investor, right? So, you know, I've invested in some deals. Um, you know, I focus more on syndication now and, and taking down my own deals and, you know, and all that good stuff. But uh, even I was able to see that, you know, hey, you know, this is a good a good position here that we have right now. Um, you know, it may not be around forever. I mean, actually, it's, it's not, you know, going to be around forever because, you know, unless it gets redone again or whatever, you know, the, the whole tax, you know, whatever you call it, the IRS, you know, whole, whole um, IRS code or whatever. But um, yeah, so you've got to make sure you take advantage of these uh, these positions that you have right now. And um, that's certainly something that we're doing. Absolutely. So yeah, we have um, everybody's listening just wondering, 2022 was the last year you're going to be able to use 100% bonus depreciation. It's going to phase out to 80% in 2023, 60% in 2024, 40% in 2025. And then when you get all the way down to 2026, it's at 20% that it phases out completely. And no one really knows what's going to happen at that point. Yeah. So that's why it's so very important, you know, to do it now. And that brings me to another point, you know, and, and, you know, this is a little bit off topic, but I'll go ahead and, you know, I guess share it. And this is my personal opinion. So, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, what inning we're in right right now, you know, are we in the, the seventh, eighth, ninth inning or, or are we in, in extra innings? What, what are we, what are we doing right now? Right. But one thing, this is me personally, again, is, you know, I see so many people interested in real estate because of the tax advantages that we have right now. So even if there was, you know, some kind of, you know, recession or some kind of, you know, slowdown, I just, I, I don't see that much capital slowing down and, and going into real estate. I just, I see it still continuing to be a, a hot uh, asset class, you know, and, and people are still going to be dumping their money and, and investing in deals, you know, not only because of the, the tax advantages, but that's definitely one reason why they're, they're going to continue that. Uh, I like the analogy to, to baseball there, you know, what inning are we in? We've, we've had multiple guests on our podcast over the past few months who have kind of alluded to the same thing. Nobody knows if we're at the top, but the general consensus is that we're more at the top than we are towards the bottom, if that makes sense. But that also means that you have to be careful about the markets that you're investing in and the types of assets that you're purchasing. So you said that you are heavily invested in Texas markets. What's drawing you to Texas markets? Is there like an indicator there, either qualitative or not? So something that is kind of drawing you to these markets? Talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. Good question. So one reason is because I'm local, right? So I'm, I'm from Texas. I live in Houston. Uh, so that definitely does help. 
But, you know, other than that, you know, it's it's because, you know, we have a lot of different uh, strong indicators, you know, for Texas, for the state of Texas. I mean, we're getting, you know, job growth. You know, that's probably one of the most important ones that you can see that you want to look at for a market is job growth. Because once you have job growth, then what does that do? That brings in population. You know, people come in for the jobs. So then you have population growth, which we are having. We're having people coming in from the West Coast, from the East Coast, uh, from both uh, sides. Um, so we're having job growth, population growth. We're having rent growth. You know, uh, maybe it has slowed down the last, you know, six months or so, but there's still growth there. Um, and one of the, the more, more important things is that we are a landlord friendly state. You know, that's also very important. We don't invest. We don't even look at anything like in, in California or New York or anything like that because, you know, they're not landlord friendly. You know, and you know, I like I like New York. I like California, but it just doesn't work out for uh, for us, you know, as, as, a, as a business strategy. So so talk to me about that. How is Texas more landlord friendly than like a New York or a California? Yeah, yeah. So I don't know all the specifics about like like a California, but you know I've heard of stories where you know people or, or tenants have stayed on properties for you know six months to up to a year. You know, whereas Texas, you know, if if you're not paying, then you're falling, you know, falling eviction and you're you're out in thirty days. You know, something like that. So it's a lot more geared towards the uh, landlords in Texas, a lot more landlord friendly, um, and that's why we look at, look for these kind of states. You know, Texas, Arizona. Is another good state, you know, which we're actually closing on the property this week on in Arizona, and you know, there's uh, Georgia, Florida. You know, those are the kind of markets that we we like and that we definitely look at. Well, I tell you, I live in I live in New York, and uh, I know a bunch of investors who are from New York, and they absolutely can't stand the tenant laws here. Like, you should see the extents they have to go to make sure that they're getting their leases done properly. Like, for instance, like this one guy, just you know, tangent story here, but maybe this is a good anecdote, right? So, someone was I was at an investment event, and he's like, all right, so. The thing I've learned is I can't give them the key until I have this the lease signed and the payment in my hands. Because if you give someone the key in New York and they take residency to your apartment, they pretty much have so much rights, you can't get them out. So it's like just little wow. things like that you have to watch out for in New York. And then you know, I've lived in New York City for a while and you see all these people who will, like you said, will stay in a, a, an apartment for three, six, nine months before you get them out. And it's just, it's ridiculous. The law, not only you have to carry those costs, but they're living in your apartment for free. They're probably treating it like, like not nice. So um, yeah. definitely hear you there. New York's not somewhere you want to invest. Yeah. It's it just is something that uh, doesn't work for us, you know, and as I said earlier, I mean, I, I like New York. I mean, I've been there, you know, a few times and it's a beautiful state, but it just, um, just doesn't work for, for us in the, in the multifamily business, you know? Absolutely. So w- when it comes to evaluating the performance of your portfolio, what are some of the metrics you use? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we look for, obviously, uh, we want to make sure that we're looking at the uh, the occupancy, right? The economic occupancy. So we're always, you know, on calls with our managers. You know, every single, we actually had a call just today. We had a call with, with our manager, one of our managers to discuss, you know, the performance of the property and what's going on. Are we getting the rent that we're, we projected in our performa or are we not? You know, what, what's the reason? How many uh, units do we have down? You know, what's the uh, strategy to get new uh, leads in? You know, and are we closing on those leads? You know, those kind of things. So we're always looking at uh, those kind of things. But, you know, one of the most important things is how much are you collecting as well? You know, so if you have people that or tenants that are on your property and you're not getting your collections, then, you know, that's a problem. And so we always try to make sure that uh, our collections are, you know, the best as we can get and if they're, they're not there, then we got to do something about it. And that's, you know, either getting rid of the, the attendance, you know, or, or uh, just being a little bit more strict on that, you know. So those are some of the things that, you know, high level view that we, we try to do. 
You know, something you said in there is you, you know, you push rents and economic vacancy and occupancy, all that are, 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 are factors. Do you have any challenges or do you face resistance or maybe you could just speak a little about your experience about actually pushing the rent, right? So when you push the rent, do people try to push back on it? Like, how do you know when you push the rent enough or, or how do you test the market? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. First of all, you know, it really depends on the market that you're in, right? You know, we we were fortunate enough to to buy deals that uh, that were low below market rents, uh, so we knew what the the market was doing, what the comps were doing. You know, and if it, that's easy, I guess for us it was easier because those guys are already getting that right around the the property. So yeah, we go in there and uh, we we try to do it in segments, right? So we push as much as we can. You know, the, the first shot. Um, you know, without getting rehabbed. So this is without getting rehabbed. You know, this is a, just a unit with, that's. You know, pretty much it's classic. Uh, we'll, we'll do uh, some minor repairs to the units, um, and then push the rent, and then see see if it pushes well. And so uh, we've been fortunate enough, you know, in, on uh, some of our properties to get close to performance on the classics just by doing minor repairs. And then from there, we still have the upgrade uh, package that we can do, and for for an additional fifty or seventy five bucks, you know. And part of that is because of the opportunity that we found in these properties and uh, found them in, in uh, below market, uh, you know, state. Yeah, so it sounds like that's really one of the big keys in multifamily investing or just investing in general is getting something below value, getting it below the market value because then you already have built in, like built in room to run. And then on top of that, above and beyond, you could repair it, you can make it more prettier, you could add more amenities, et cetera, um, value add, and you could push the rents perhaps even further, which is nice. Right, right. That's that's uh, was something that we've been fortunate enough to do. And um, you know, very little. I mean, some of these were spending about 200 bucks, 250 bucks on um, on upgrades. And those upgrades were literally, they were um, some some of the cabinet pools and uh, lighting fixture. There was a lighting fixture and a cabinet pools, 200 bucks, 250 bucks. And we're able to push, you know, 50, 60 bucks, you know, just, just on those kind of things, you know. So you're able to get your return, you know, in four months or so, you know. So that's, uh, that's the kind of returns, uh, the kind of, you know, upgrades that we like to do. I mean, that's, I mean, you, you put very little into the property, you get uh, your return right away. It's good. You know, actually, while we're talking about all this, something just crossed my mind that really just, you know, when it comes to multifamily versus single family, right, is the, the ability that in multifamily, you can actually force appreciation, you can actually force the value of a building up through increasing the rent and minimizing expenses. Whereas with single family, you can do that to an extent. But first of all, you don't have the, the economies of scale. And second of all, it's not really how it's traditionally valued. So when you're selling a single family house, for instance, you might be selling it to a retail buyer, someone who's going to live in that house. They don't care on how much income that looks. They, they care about how it looks compared to their neighbor's house, maybe. So just something interesting about multifamily is it's much more like a business. Uh, it's valued much more like a business than, than, say, single family rentals are, which is nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, multifamily definitely is a business in itself. You know, and, and you got to treat it as a business. And versus single family, you know, single family was was a whole another another story. Um, you know, I liked it; it was it was cool. But you know, one thing I like about multifamily specifically is that itself is is a business. So each each entity is a business. You know, each property is a business, and uh, you have to treat it that way. You know, you can't treat it as as a, a hobby at all, especially you have investors in, in you know alongside with you. That's that's not good. So switching gears a little bit, we've talked about some tax strategies like cost segregation and 100% bonus depreciation. Is there anything else out there that you're using, maybe even down on the personal level, any sort of tax strategies that you're kind of using to optimize your tax position? Yeah, yeah. So one thing that I've done, and I just did it last year, right? So it was uh, to pay my kids, you know, so 
I was able nice. to pay them and I, and I paid them what it was at six, 6,000. I think it was what it was. And again, I don't know the numbers, but you know, that was a number that I was told that I could, that I can do, you know, without, a, you know, it causing a red flag or something like that. But, um, so yeah, I was able to do that and, and yeah, it, it definitely did help out my, my taxes, you know, with, uh, you know, just, just claiming having or having my kids, you know, work in the business and it really did help out. Yeah. And so to kind of elaborate on that a little bit, we, we love that strategy, right? We, we transfer wealth to our children. Um, they work legitimately in our business in order to earn those wages, but basically you get a tax deduction for the $6,000 and then your child realizes $6,000 of income, but that's less than the standard deduction, especially after the 2018 tax because jobs act. So they don't actually have to report, uh, any of their income on a tax return. They don't have to file a tax return. So you essentially create tax savings out of nothing just by moving your earnings to your children, assuming, of course, that they are legitimately working in your business. Uh, but that's we, we love that strategy because it just creates this long-lasting family wealth. So, what are your what are your children going to do with their earnings? Yeah, yeah. So they actually want to uh, you know invest. You know, they want to invest in, in real estate. You know, so uh, that's one thing that you know I've been you know teaching them and, and telling them about. So they made their money for for last year. And, you know, they want to uh, see how they can multiply that, you know, and I mean, I'm going to be paying them again, you know, this year, you know, so that that'll just uh, multiply for them. I wish I had that, those opportunities when I was a kid, you know, like I didn't get those opportunities, you know, you know, these kids are small and they're legitimately, you know, working on the business, you know, and helping me out, but just having the opportunity to be able to pay them, you know, as well. That's awesome. You know, and, and it's all legal as you can do that. So that's one of the beauties of uh, the, uh, the, uh, the tax strategies out there, you know? Nice. So, Something else we noticed on your website when we were browsing around was that you have a library listed there. And if you had to pick one book to recommend, what would that book be and why? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's a tough choice, you know, because there's a lot of different books, you know, that I like. And some I need to add some more into the into that library. But uh, I would say the, the Cashflow Quadrant. And the reason why I chose that one is because it's simple. I like Think and Grow Rich, but that one is, is a little bit more like you have to think about it and you know those kind of things. But the cash flow quadrant is is a solid book and it kind of helps you to to know, you know, which side of the quadrant you want to be on. You know, and for us, you know, we're in the the B and the I, right? You know, and that's that's where we want to be to be able to reduce our taxes. And it kind of fits, you know, what we're talking about here, actually, you know, because you know, if you're in the B and the I, you're gonna pay less taxes for sure. Uh if you're in the E and, and the S, then you're gonna pay you know more of the taxes. So you know, th- that was a good book that I read. And it was actually after Rich Dad Poor Dad. And I don't know, I was supposed to read in that order. I don't, I don't know if there's any any way you're supposed to read it, but that's just the way I happened to read it. I was like, man, this thing, it just like blew, blew up in my mind. And I was like, man, this is pretty awesome. And so that's why I recommend it to a lot of people. A hundred percent. I read the Rich Dad Poor Dad book and then read Cashflow Quadrant back to back. Like this was like five years ago now. And I'd say Cashflow Quadrant's probably... My favorite Rich Dad book, you know, and it's up there with my in my top five of, of the best books. So if people haven't read that out there, go pick that book up. It's great. It's a great book. Yeah, yeah, I definitely recommend that one. Uh, check that book out. And if you haven't heard of that quadrant, the the ESBI, then it'll definitely open up your mind, and you're gonna be like, man, your jaw's gonna drop, you know, and you're gonna be like, man, why didn't I even learn this? Or you know, where have I been this whole time? You know, so that's definitely a solid book for anybody listening. So um, one question we always ask all of our guests is what is the favorite piece of technology or mobile app that you're currently using in your business? Yeah. Yeah. So we keep it simple. So the, a couple of them that we use are uh, Dropbox and Google Drive. And so in there, we have all our files, everything's all in order, you know, and it's just a way for, for us to share. And, you know, it's all in one place. 
So Google Drive and uh, and Dropbox are like the two of them that, that we use like pretty much every single day, you know, uh, for our business. Oh, so we we big fans of Google Drive over, over here and big fans of Google. Google is just uh, Google everything, right? Yeah, uh, same here. Yeah, I love Google for, for everything, you know, so I got to gotta support them, you know. All right. Well, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you or learn more about you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, so, you know, if you, people want to reach out to me, you know, with any questions or anything, I'd I, I love to help out. That's uh, Juan at GenWealthCapital.com. Uh, Juan at GenWealthCapital.com. Uh, I'll be happy to uh, jump on a phone call or, um, you know, meet in person if you're here local or whatever, you know. So I'm um, also all, all over social media. So uh, Facebook, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, you know, wherever you can find me. Yeah, and you have a you have a podcast too, Commit to Wealth, right? Uh, I have a podcast as well. Yeah, uh, Commit to Wealth. So you can check that one out on uh, committowealth.com. Um, you know, I've had a lot of great guests on there as well. All right. Well, thanks again for coming to the show, Juan. It was a great conversation. Look forward to getting this out there. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I appreciate you guys and uh, wish you guys continued success. So we're here today on the debrief section of the podcast. We just interviewed Juan Vargas and we discussed a lot about multifamily, some interesting tax stuff. And uh, here we are to debrief. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting to hear him move from single family to multifamily. I think that we see that a lot with our clients too. As they continue to scale, they just kind of realize that the economies of scale with multifamily is a lot easier to manage and maintain than it is single family properties, right? Like 35 units under one roof is a heck of a lot easier to manage than 35 separate properties. So you definitely have that economies of scale built in. But you know, I, I asked him about the change in moving from single family to multifamily homes from a tax perspective too. And it, uh, it seems like he, he saw a positive change. But w- with a lot of our clients, when you apply the tangible property regulations um, that were released back in 2013, multifamily property is a lot more flexible from a tax perspective than single family property is. And to just give you a high level example, if we're looking at a betterment to a system, a unit of property, let's look at the HVAC system, for example, we're looking at a betterment. And what I mean by that is we are replacing the HVAC unit. If I'm replacing the HVAC unit on a single family home, I am really materially improving the HVAC system as a whole. Um, There's only one HVAC unit as part of that system. So I'm arguably replacing 90% of the entire system in a single family home. But when I do that in a multifamily property, let's say it's a 10 unit property and I replace one HVAC unit. Now, all of a sudden, it's really only a 10% or even less in terms of how it affects the entire system, right? So one HVAC unit divided by 10, I've only replaced one out of 10. That's only 10% of the entire system. That's not a material amount. And as a result, I have flexibility there in terms of how I treat that improvement under the tangible property regulations, I might be able to totally deduct it as a repair. It might not actually qualify as a betterment adaption or restoration to the property, depending on the timing of it. So, you know, when our clients move to multifamily property, especially if they have any sort of uh, expenditures related to improvements, we always like to scrub those depreciation schedules, those fixed asset schedules to just make sure that we are applying the tangible property regs correctly. But our folks that have multifamily property always come out way better off than the folks that have single family. Yeah, we see that all the time, especially with the cost segregation studies and being able to really you know increase depreciation by such large amounts. And you know, especially if you're also a real estate professional, it impacts you even more when you're investing in multifamily because you're able to take those larger losses against your ordinary income, perhaps from other businesses or jobs you're involved in, um, or perhaps even your spouse, which is always nice. 
Um, but we kind of beat the real estate professional to death. But one thing, for good reason, for yeah. good reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. For no, absolutely. But you know, one thing that I do see on the multifamily side with some of our clients, especially the syndicators, is that sometimes they prefer to capitalize a large portion of their rehab expenses to get it off of their P&L and, and onto their balance sheet. Because as we all know, NOI drives the value of, of multifamily real estate. And whenever you put a repair maintenance item on your P&L, you're driving down your NOI, NOI and then thus making your property look like it might be worth less than it is. But at the same time, on the flip side, uh, you could be overcapitalizing items, I guess you could say, and capitalizing things that really should be a repair maintenance expense uh, in order to artificially inflate your NOI number. I, I remember when we were looking at properties back in 2017, when I was doing the syndication I did, that was one of the things we were looking for was to make sure that people weren't pushing too much stuff to their balance sheet um, in order to, you know, sometimes we had to back out some numbers. Interesting. So when you were looking to pick up your deal, those are some things you were looking for. You're looking at the balance sheet to figure out what's been added to the balance sheet, just making sure that that in that example with the HVAC unit where they could be deducting it as a repair, they're just throwing it right on the balance sheet. And you know the buyer might not be technically savvy enough to identify that. So they see a $10,000 higher NOI, which boosts the, the overall property value. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, pretty much. Now, if I go and buy a property and I do a bunch of rehab and expenditures... Do you see a difference if there's like a short-term hold strategy versus a long-term hold strategy? Like I, I can imagine that as a short-term hold, I would want to put things on the balance sheet, right? To immediately start boosting my NOI. But what if I'm going to hold for like five to seven years? Yeah, well, then in that case, it might make more sense to expense some things to increase your cash flow. So I guess it all comes down to what your goals are for the property, what's the business plan. And that's going to kind of, in some ways, help dictate and drive uh, the tax strategy and accounting strategies that you're going to have behind the property. Because like you just said, if you're going to hold for the longer term, you're probably looking for cash flow. And in that case, by putting stuff onto your P&L, putting your repair and maintenance expenses on your P&L, you're going to decrease uh, your taxable uh, net income and thus uh, increase your cash flow. Whereas if you're looking to do it short term, basically flip the property, uh, you'd be better off putting it onto the balance sheet so that when you finally do go sell the property, your NOI looks uh, it looks higher or is higher. It is higher um, mm -hmm. when you're going to sell that property. Absolutely. So what do you think about the paying the kids strategy? Love that strategy. Um, always love strategies that uh, while I don't have any kids yet, I do have strong philosophies. The way I'm going to raise my kids, they want to teach them the value of hard work. So not only can you teach them the value of hard work by paying them through strategy, but you're getting a tax deduction for it. So you're reducing the tax you're paying. They're getting it tax-free. And there's actually another component of that strategy, which we didn't discuss, which was the ability to take that number. I think the reason why Juan had gotten advice to pay their, his kids $6,000 was because of the IRA uh, threshold of $6,000 that allows you to, you know, pretty much a, a child could take the Roth IRA, take the money they earn, their earned income, and contribute it to a Roth IRA and thus grow wealth within their Roth IRA. Yeah, good connection there. The I'll talk about risk a little bit too. You know, whenever we kind of propose these types of strategies to our clients, sometimes we'll get questions about, well, how risky is this? And the key to mitigating risk is just substantiating the deduction, right? So if I have a you know, six-month-old child, I'm not going to pay them six thousand dollars for modeling, right? That's just never going to fly. Uh, but if I have a teenager 
I can most certainly ship them out to the property for a day or, or for many days, <laughs> depending on how unruly your teenager is. And I can have them work out there, do maintenance, yard maintenance, um, just like property maintenance, whatever else, whatever I can get them a job for that they can actually do in their capacity as a teenager. And I can pay them for that. And that's totally, totally legitimate. You do have to make sure that all of your T's are crossed and your I's are dotted. You do need a job description in place. You do need to uh, pay them on payroll. But as long as you are doing everything the correct way, you shouldn't really be worried too much about running afoul of any sort of laws. No, absolutely. One of my favorite strategies, honestly. All right. So moving right along into the Q&A segment of this podcast. Remember, uh, during this segment, we do answer questions from you, the listener. So if you do want to have your question answered live, go to www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcasts with an S and do drop your question and submit it in the box. And today we actually have a question from Tim. And Tim asks, how do you determine basis on a passive partnership investment? I get a K-1 each year and all the details are here, but how do I find out and keep up with my basis? Mm, Good question, Tim. So you really have two things going on here. You really have an outside basis and an inside basis whenever we're talking about partnerships. And without getting too crazy and into the weeds, your outside basis is essentially what you invested. Your inside basis is what you invested plus the profits, minus the distributions, minus the losses, plus any liabilities that you might be liable for. If you are an LP investing in a syndicate, if I invest $50,000 into a syndication, my basis in that syndication is $50,000. If I receive a big distribution, let's say I receive a distribution of $10,000, my basis drops to $40,000. So I went from 50 to 40 because of that $10,000 distribution. Uh, If the entity shows a net loss, Like, let's say that I have a $50,000 basis and it shows a net loss of $45,000. Now my basis is only $5,000, meaning that I can really only take a distribution equal to $5,000 before we're going to have to really start getting strategic about how we're distributing funds to investors. So what you can do if you are investing as an LP in a syndicate uh, or in a real estate fund, what you can do is get all the K-1s related to that investment. It should show that initial cash contribution. It should also show... Uh, either the net income or the net loss. So you can add that or subtract that from your basis. You can also add any additional contributions that you might make and then subtract any distributions that you've taken over the years. So if I looked at three K-1s ranging from 2016 to 2018, I might see on the initial K-1, the contribution of 50K. The second K-1 might say a distribution of 10,000. And the third K-1 might say another distribution of 10,000. Well, if we broke even all those years, my basis is going to be $30,000, right? It's the $50,000 initial contribution minus the 10K distribution in 2017 and then the other 10K distribution in 2018. So you really just have to go and look at those K-1s and keep track of it yourself. We do highly recommend that you keep track of it. Uh, We recently helped a client go back to their syndicate and essentially have them correct their accounting records because when we were tracking their basis, we ended up with a number that I believe was about $25,000 or $30,000 higher than what their account, the syndicate's records showed um, for that capital partner. And what that means is when you go and liquidate the property, our client was being paid out about twenty-five to $30,000 less than they should have been paid out. But we were able to go back and, and help them get that corrected and uh, get all that situated just by tracking basis, basically rebuilding it from the beginning, tracking it on a big, on a big spreadsheet. Um, so yeah, so that, that's kind of how you track it. 
Yeah, and you know what? This kind of leads to another point too. Is like when you're investing in a syndicate, you probably want to track your bases yourself. And you also want to pay very close attention to the warfalls that are outlined in the operating agreement to make sure that you're getting paid the proper amount of money that you're supposed to get paid back, including your your the return of principal plus uh, any returns that you're owed that you're due um, because you signed that operating agreement. So just something else to think about. And remember, folks, if you want to have us answer your question live here on the air, go to www.therealestatecpa.com backslash podcast, drop your question and submit it, and we may just answer it here live. Until next time, Brandon Hall and Thomas Costelli signing out. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.